You must remember this A kiss is just a kiss A sigh is just a sigh The fundamental things apply As time goes by Of all the podcasts in all the web You chose to listen to mine it again, Sam. The world will always welcome lovers as time goes by. Hello, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome. This is Sam Sethi. Yes, thank you for joining us on Marlow FM. And today on uh, Sam Talks Technology as well. Um, I'm joined by two of my friends. Uh, my guest today is Josh Russell. Hello, Josh. Hi, Sam. Thanks for having me. And my co-host today, as usual, is Steve Karminski. Steve, hello. How are you? Oh, and you got my name right today. Oh, mate, I've been practising in front of the mirror <laughs> all week. <laughs> um, how are you both? Right, well, look, let's first off, people know who you are, Steve. So let's find out, Josh, who are you and what do you do? Hi, so yeah, my name is Josh Russell. Um, I would say I'm a bit of a, a tech industry veteran. Um, but you don't I, look old enough to be a tech industry veteran. Nice of you to say. <laughs> I think it's the, radio, I can say what I like. That's true, and there's no proof. Um, so I, I, I suppose one qualifying thing would be buying my first domain in about 1997. Did he beat you, so, Steve? 1993. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> that's fair enough. Um, but yeah, I, I think I would largely call myself a technology strategist now, but um, only because uh, I've got quite a broad background and experience, I guess. Okay, so I'd say, what, 20-odd years in the industry? Yeah. And um, so about the same as all of us, really. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, so let's find out, what are you up to these days? What's, what's, what's the main thing that you've been doing? I mean, I, I'll, I'll touch on it first. Let's start with Tech Fuji's, which is one of the things you've been doing. What is Tech Fuji's and, and how did you get involved? Yeah, so Tech Fuji's um, is something that I'm now an advisor at, um, but uh, a group of us founded um, in 2015, I believe. Um, it's, it was basically... Um, so what, I mean, obviously one person we know, Mike Butcher. Yeah, that's Anyone right. Anyone else that we might know on there? Um, so the current CEO is Josephine Goob. Um, she uh, ran a, a startup called Migrate previously about helping people migrate. Um, so she's got quite a lot of um, you know, background knowledge on, on the problem that it uh, tackles. Uh, and that, the problem that TechFugees tackles is essentially the needs of people that are being displaced, um, which is, you know, at that time was happening quite a lot, people moving out of Syria for various reasons, um, but also entering countries. And as a technology community, um, we started the whole thing with the idea that maybe there's more that we can more we can do with our skills um and so how can we take technology and trying to try to solve some of the problems that those people have um, and also to kind of build uh, things that would be uh, available ongoing for similar crisis in the future so give me some examples of things that you've done or built that would be relevant to what tech fujis do Sure. So um, I would say one of the main areas we try and uh, tackle is um, helping people to integrate into a place that they've just arrived in. Um, so often a country is unfamiliar. Uh, we know that from just traveling and going on holiday. Um, but if you've yeah. been forced to arrive somewhere that you weren't expecting to arrive in... And um, the language isn't your language. Yeah, and, and language is, you know, one of the easier things, ironically, because English is, you know, quite a common, common thing. But it can be as simple as not knowing the local customs, um, not knowing... Uh, 
you know, where things are to find or what processes you're supposed to go through. Uh, and then once you're more established in a place, um, you know, actually, how do you contribute and be part of that, that new society and community? You know, so one of the big um, problems often comes up is that people coming out of these countries have qualifications, but don't have any records of them. You know, so they find it hard to work. Um, and that's, that's a very typical thing. And that's uh, kind of an example of something that we're trying to tackle. Some of the extreme ideas that people have are very technology led. Um, you know, like what, for example? So one, one that comes up uh, or has come up in the past um, when we were not quite as good as at our messaging was um, the idea of you know, building a drone network to uh, you know, blanket the Mediterranean to find people that uh, might be lost at sea. Um, it's really just not a very practical thing to do. You know? Very expensive as well. Expensive and you're getting in the way of people that actually know what they're doing in that space. You know? So um, actually we realised the best thing to do is to partner with NGOs um, see what their needs are, see if we can just help them do their job better. Um, and then uh, I'd say the, the biggest thing that's come out of it is now a community, a worldwide community of people that are trying to think about this problem. Uh, so we have, I think, 25, but it's probably more now, uh, chapters around the world, um, around Europe and the Middle East, obviously, but then also uh, Australia is one of our biggest communities. Um, they have um, completely different uh, scenarios over there. Um, and so we have this large community of technology people that are now uh, have a platform to engage NGOs and help them with technology and bring what we've done for 20 years plus uh, to their world. Yeah, you were saying it's, it could be as simple as, you know, setting up a Wi-Fi for NGOs. Yeah. You know, it doesn't have to be complex database systems everyday things that we all struggle with exactly you know so uh, and then add the layer of where is the electricity come for, coming from or you know where is my internet connection coming from you know but yeah the, um, one of the one of the classic things is IT support you know we just need IT support and in the corporate world we know how much that can unstick problems and how much it can be a problem if you can't print something or you know so when lives are at risk even those simple things are quite important things to try and tackle yeah Steve this sounds like something you might have got involved in have you um, yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, I wanted to, and then it just never got, it just one of these things that just never got around to doing. Okay. Um, you know. Yeah, but you uh, know of Tech Fuji's, of course. Yeah, of course. Um, and yeah, they've, they, they, I've known, actually, I've known Josephine for quite a while, so, uh, even I, before me. I have uh, to ask for an intro and <laughs> interview her myself, it's, since it's, everyone else knows her. The whole thing was a very classic examples of being really scrappy and kind of rushed. You know, we, we literally um, put together a conference and a, a weekend of um, what we call um, a hackathon or, you know, ideation yep. um, within about two or three weeks. And we managed to have 300 people uh, turn up to that conference. We had everything supplied to us by friends in the, in the community, uh, including a venue. Um, yeah, and, we, and, you know, it was amazing at that time to have so many people um not only be interested but also want to volunteer their time at such short notice um and it, yeah and actually one of the most important things we did at that conference um was to invite refugees to it and tell their stories as well you know so i think it was about half of the people that were giving talks uh, were people that were actually experiencing the problem we were there to try and solve at the time wow um if somebody wants to get involved today how do they do that so very simply techfugees.com yeah i'm just um, on the site now i love i love yeah. the strap line i know you you, you elaborated it earlier but I, I think it's in fact gets even more succinct empowering the displaced with technology just as simple as that i think it's that's next says level, it all. Isn't yeah it? <laughs> just says it all really doesn't it yeah i mean i think we have a certain picture of uh you know what a displaced person is and what they look like and what they do and what they've gone through um you know and that they need our help and that's only true to a certain point actually they 
they can do a lot of things on their own. Um, and they, you know, so empowering them is like, you know, the curve going up rather than keeping the curve f- flat for them, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there was a brilliant photo I saw, a black and white photo, and it was of millions of Europeans who were displaced mm. in Syria during right. the last war. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the World War. And, and people in Europe have forgotten that Syria actually saved many, many Europeans by housing them while the war was going on. You know, um, uh, you know, Steve may, may know more about this, but a lot of Jewish people were certainly um, saved by going out of the country uh, or out of Europe. And yet there, there is such a negativity to supporting and helping refugees still. Yeah, I, I think... Um you know, uh, regardless of the current political situation, you know, people in need are scary. You know, they um, often, you often imagine that they are going to do extreme things because they're in need. And what family wouldn't want to do yeah. or need to do extreme things to look after their children, that kind of thing, right? But actually any of us could be in that situation. Um, Absolutely. You know, so just, you know, like some of the things we've been trying to build are around that storytelling to try and give people this understanding of what it is really like to go through this. And any of us could. And, uh, you know, one of the big future ones that we can kind of predict, which is terrifying to be able to think about this, um, is, um, of course, migration due to environmental change. Mm. You know, that's going to happen to many, many, many orders of magnitude, more people <laughs> than wars currently are doing. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I liken it to Dick Whittington. You mm. know, the streets are paved with gold in London, so people migrated to London. Yeah. Um, if water or, or climate or, in unfortunately, Syria and many other countries in the Middle East are, are displaced because of war, they're going to come to where the wealth is, which is here in Europe, yeah. you know, and, and they're going to make their way to the most language-specific country, England, that they feel comfortable in. Yeah, exactly, you know, um, and there have been movies that have de- um, you know, depicted this kind of thing happening in other countries as well, so um, I remember, the, is it The Day After Tomorrow, where yes, uh, the blizzard yeah. kind of wipes out America and they all move into Mexico? Yes. You know, I mean, that's you know, not that precise thing's going to happen, but that kind of thing is going to happen. We're going to see movement where it's unexpected. Okay, so what sustains Tech Fuji's? Uh, Tech Fuji's... Um, is it funding? Is it money? Is it How, how is it sustainable? It's... It, because I, I worry that you get the initial hiatus, the, the, yay, let's do something, it's brilliant, let's go for it. Yeah. And then everyone's like a year down the road, well, okay, let's go back to what we normally do. That's true, and that's why the partnerships with the existing NGOs are really important, because, of course, they're working all year round. Um, you know, and it's, it's not just about responding, it's about, you know, creating responses, if okay. that makes sense. Um, and so we have partnerships with them. Um, we're now uh, based in Paris, um, and I believe they're going through the process of setting up as a non-profit in Paris now. Okay. Um, and we've Why had, Paris? Sorry? Why Paris? Why Paris? So Josephine is uh, French. Okay. Um, um, but also... That's we a have good a, reason. We have a large community there as well. Okay. You know, and, um, you know, we, we ran our big conference there as well, our summit in uh, Station F in Paris. We've had space there donated to us. So let's go back to the funding point. We've, we've so far um, been surviving through uh, the work of volunteers uh, and donations of services mainly. When's the next conference? I'm t- trying to see. Uh, it'll be towards the end of the year. I think September or October. Okay. Yeah. Let's keep an eye on that. Definitely. Um, other things you're doing because you're a busy busy man if you look at your linkedin um Mm. tech for uk what is tech for uk 
So Tech for UK again, uh, another large voluntary group. <laughs> this time, uh, again, take, uh, having that idea of you know tech, tech people have skills so that they, they can deploy. Um, this one was about um, the topic of Brexit. So uh, he said the B word. I, I didn't. Have. He said it first. Go on. <laughs> I'll try to keep it to a minimum. Um, yeah. People do ask me what what do you do at the moment. It's like well, I think about Brexit. <laughs> um, I wish it wasn't that way. Yes. Um, Tech for UK, though, uh, we're a representative organisation in many ways. Uh, so the tech community uh, didn't have a voice at the time um, and still uh, you know, isn't really covered very much in terms of the impact of, of Brexit and uh, um, you know, what, what technology's role was and is in Brexit as well. So the first thing was coordinating a group of people to express that Brexit's you know, an issue. Uh, for the tech community. So we uh, have written a letter to the Prime Minister. Uh, we've had about uh, 1,300 uh, signatures from tech leaders in that. So those are all uh, people that either founded uh, tech companies or are essentially responsible for jobs and revenue and tax into the country, you know, and their businesses and their customers. Um, so... All sizes of business, big, small, medium. Yeah, all sizes, of course. Okay. Yeah, um, so it really does. It does span a, a large spectrum. Um, so the idea there was to say, you know, we we need a, a voice that um, discusses Brexit uh, in the context of the technology industry. Um, but then again, to flip that slightly in the, in the kind of direction of tech fugees, actually, we were a group of people with skills. So what can we do on that topic? Uh, so we've been um, building platforms around mainly informing people about the, about Brexit, so helping people understand it, um, uh, understand how it affects them, um, not necessarily uh, decisions to make, um, but really just kind of like... Um, just that little depth that we're, we might be missing. So one of the um, projects that uh, has been very successful is called myeu.uk. Right. Um, and this is a, in some ways, kind of obvious idea. There's lots and lots of data locked up in spreadsheets on what the EU has spent in the UK. It's not very easy to look around. So we put it on a map. Uh, and you can literally put your postcode in uh, and see the impacts that the EU has had in your area. Because that's one of the most important... I mean, Brexit is a, is a very personal thing in many ways. Um, people have made decisions on Brexit because of the things that affect them, you know, positively or negatively, or for, you know, leaving or remain. Um, so any information you can have helps you form an opinion about it. And knowing what's going on in your local area, you know, is important on that personal level because we're affected by that directly. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm just on the website now, techforuk.com. You've got my EU final say what's that final say is a very interesting one um so one of the most powerful things you can do when you're trying to uh, engage in politics is to contact your mp um, again on any topic um it's quite a laborious process final say lets you send a voicemail okay yeah i mean I, look i'm i'm very much in favor of all of this right and, and i think um that's great i'm going to play devil's advocate for a minute um Two million people marched against the Gulf War. Mm -hmm. uh, pick a number, anywhere between half a million million people marched against Brexit and wanting the people's vote. Um, but will it have any effect? Will, will you know, go into your final say app and send your MP? It'll have no effect where I live because it's Theresa May. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> you know, I can tell her anything I like, she's going to stick to her guns. But... Does this stuff really have any measurable effect or is it good for us in the tech industry to say we did as much as we could, 
but BMPs just you know. I, I think it. It, obviously it can make a huge difference. I mean, if you look, give at, me an example, you know, Steve. Well, what look at Cambridge Analytica and what they did by manipulating Facebook and the, you know, it's now coming out with the depth of of how ingrained it was into Facebook and how much people like Zuckerberg actually knew what they were doing and and and, and charging them very nicely for the, the privilege of okay. doing it. So I'm going to but play they, devil's um, advocate to you. The share price has gone up and their profits have gone up. I'm not Made saying no that. Effect. I'm, 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 absolutely, but they are. They, you know, it is possible to manipulate. Um, the, the populace using tech and that can be both in a good way and a malicious way and i think there's a there still is a, a lot of people out there who um you know if you're marginalized and then you know having um something out there that that shows you that that marginalization isn't um particularly isn't isn't just you, you it may push you into view that is, is a more positive and and more, you know, you're not you're not voting against the the political atrophy. You're then voting in a positive manner. Okay, but I, I'm or doing asking, something in a positive manner. I, I, I look, I'm with you both, right? But I'm playing devil's advocate for the nice. sake of it. Is is it really just us appeasing ourselves and making us feel better that we've done something? You know, I've I've got one of the presenters here on Marlowe FM is is Dave, right? He's on the extinction. Rebellion March today, which caused disruption in London. It'll be tomorrow's chip wrapper. Who cares? What will the effect be? I mean, and you know, Gilets Joe made an effect in France. I'll give them that. But but we don't seem to have any effect. Now I'm not not decrying the effort, but I'm just trying to understand if all this effort results in any impact. So uh, <clears throat> just to go back to the contacting your MP thing. Um, mm. Theresa May herself stands in Parliament and one of her lines is, the messages I'm hearing are... Right. Right. So she is citing that already herself, or at least using that as a way to engage. Yeah, but she's Um, citing things that are supporting her argument. Yeah, potentially. Right. So when you say, um, you know, there's no point me engaging her because I know her position, actually, she wants to get elected. And if there are enough people that actually opposed her position or presented anything that might be slightly different to it, she potentially does listen. Well, I I think Theresa is an odd exception. I think any other MP, I agree with you. Well, she's going to go and and she doesn't care. To to counter that, I mean, uh, being from Brighton, I have Caroline Lucas as, uh, as my MP. Great MP. Complete opposite problem. Right. What's the point in me asking her? (laughs) But actually, she needs to be shown that there is support for her position as well. Yes. You know, so I think the moment we stop engaging is the moment when things really go wrong, because that's what they want. They want us to not engage. Yeah, they want to be passive. Yeah, the Republicans in America, not to make this an entire hour of uh, political talk, but the Republicans, Republicans in America are well documented as saying they would rather people didn't vote. You know, um, that's very dangerous. You know, so anything we can do to engage and to, you know, to respond to kind of like doing anything. Yeah, I'd rather do something than not. Um, and, you know, Skunk and Nancy said everything's political. And I think sh- I think they were right. Yeah, it is. And so, OK, let's look at the positive. Text for UK. Um, how big is it? You said 1,500 companies roughly growing. Um, how, how can companies get involved? What, what can they do to help? Yeah, so I think one of the main things is to do that simple communication. So um, individuals, obviously, you know, us contacting our MPs is important, but if you represent other people, you know, in their in their livelihoods and their families, that's an important thing to talk about publicly. Um, and a, a lot of the companies that we, we actually represent, of course, hire people from all over the world as well. You know, so um, one company, Basu, um, moved from Madrid 
uh, before Brexit and moved their entire company, which I think at the time was about 50 people from Madrid, you know, they might have to go home. And that's, you know, uh, not only an impact to their business and huge disruption, but individually, you know, that's, uh, you know, um, affecting all those individuals' lives and their families. And so then it becomes an HR problem. All of these things have knock-on effects. So I would say... Um, and what they can do is be prepared for all situations, of course. That's what you do in business. That's what we've seen all the banks doing. They've been prepared right from day one. Um, we should all be doing that. Um, but also don't be afraid to actually surface the way that it's going to affect you. I think that's a very important thing to do. Um, and quite simply, uh, if you're in interested in getting involved in Tech for UK, um, go to techforuk.com. There's a join button. Um, lend your skills and tell your stories. Sadly, I've got no skills, so <laughs> that's just that's that's about it. I mean, just sitting here chatting is about the only skill I've got left right now. Um, Steve, you should be on there, mate. Are you on there? Uh, I'm I'm signed up, and uh, but unfortunately, um, I just not have ever um, whatever they've organised something I've n not been around. That it's, sounds like a weak excuse to me, Steve. It is a weak excuse, but I, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, said, I mean, one of the other things, of course, is that you know we're largely based in London, um, and we're trying to break that bubble as well. Um, so we're looking for people that would uh, like to run communities in the rest of the country too. Uh, we have members from around the country, but um, we're not able to organise very well around the rest of the country as well. So that's another opportunity. We'll have a chat offline. I've got some good people yeah. who I think genuinely would help you in Bristol, Manchester, Newcastle. Um, so I think we could break that out. Um, okay. And then that takes me on to the last sort of area that you're working on these days is called Benefactory. What is Benefactory? It sounds really interesting, but I have no idea what it is. Yeah, Benefactory. Um, so Benefactory is... Uh, I suppose our, it's a new consultancy in many ways. Um, and benefactory club, we've got a fancy domain. Um, and the, the idea of Benefactory is, as a club, um, our members are people that are building what we call the organisations that the future needs. Um, quite a broad and leading topic uh, or way of describing it, I think. But essentially, um, we want to try and help people that are trying to have positive effects in the world to do that through enterprise, to do that through business, um, very much in a kind of Buckminster Fuller kind of fashion. You know, if you want to change something, compete with it, right. you know, create something better. Um, so uh, we're kind of taking everything we've learned over the decades of work uh, in technology and product development and design um, and applying that uh, to new ways of doing business, essentially. Um, very, very simply, there's this idea of the triple bottom line accounting system. Um, so normally an organization's bottom line is its money, its, its profit, its finance. Uh, there are two more you add, uh, social and environmental and you bake in measurements on those two measurements as well. Um, and that's a very simplistic way of looking at it, an idea that's been around quite a long time. Um, but there are many more frameworks now coming up that actually add a lot of substance to that around creating business cases for why you do those extra things. So c can we call this the goal of capital capitalism 2.0? I mean, is that too simple a statement to it? So, uh, yeah, I, I will use whatever labels people want to use. Okay. Um, I prefer to think about the features of the things rather than the labels of the things. Yeah, but, I, yeah. The, the only reason I, I, I give labels is because it gives people to, a hook to hang their Definitely. hat on and, and then once they've got it in their head. You know, when we've, we've all pitched to VCs, you're the Uber of, you're the Google of, <laughs> you're the something of something which they can understand and then you explain your unique proposition. And so, in many ways, uh, I, I get what you're saying because... 
um, we, we, we went down to Cooper's, we had lunch just before, um, and, you know, we were talking about how Friedman, you know, um, basically in his economic model changed in the 70s uh, the way companies work by saying shareholder value was the, the priority. And ever since then, we've seen the diminishing of human capitalism, mm. you know, wage suppression as an example, um, zero-hour contracts is another example of that. Yeah. Um, and, and the driving goal of capitalism, Wondero, if we want to still give it that label, is, is shareholder return and share price. And, and I think there should be, I mean, and, and short-termism, that was the other thing I, yeah. I really find capitalism today is really bad at. Yes, it's great at taking resources and, and getting those into a profitable return, but I think it has got to change. So yeah. how, how do you think adding social um, uh, other than financial and environmental will make any change. Give me some examples. Yeah, so I mean, if you don't mind, I'll just go back a little bit through, please, please through what do. you said. But yeah. um, it will change, but it has changed, is changing. Capitalism okay. has changed continuously. It has adapted, you know, since years. But zero. it seems to have adapted um, the wrong way. But that's, that depends on how you measure it, of course, and, and how you're allowed to adapt. Okay, right? so, so I'll say yeah. Amazon's billionaire who doesn't pay taxes, allegedly. Yeah, um, because they're allowed to, you know, so... Uh, that's what I'm saying, yeah. capitalism going the wrong right. way okay but my point was more kind of uh, neutral in the sense that it does oh, okay. change yeah so things change naturally yep. uh, it's just about in which direction like you say so you're yep. right to point that out um but also i'd argue that the very reason that society exists is because of um the change that happens when we started organizing in groups together um that manifests now mostly as companies um and of course as countries um but that ability to organize and coordinate and rely on each other and rely on a community um, gave us the ability to scale gave us the ability to have free time uh, to create art and science and music yep. um, before that we were you know scavenging and hunting you know yeah, yeah. Um, so the ability to organize is a good thing um, it's just about uh, what uh, how we can still organize in the ways that have been um, good over that time and will happen in the future um, while also still benefiting the people that are involved in that organization and the people that are touched by the organization. So that might be employees, supply chain, um, local well, communities. Yeah, I mean, look, um, I was an Apple fanboy. I'm <laughs> tangentially still to a degree. Yeah. And I only mention that because Apple, um, A, and Google, I think, have gone 100% sustainable in terms of resources for energy. Yeah, um, I think that's true. And this week, um, Apple announced that they're now pushing that back onto their supply chain. So the yep. whole of their supply chain now has to be sustainable and resource efficient, which is great. So from their position of power, they are demanding downwardly in their supply chain, work with us if you meet our goals and don't yep. if you don't. There's um, the, the fashionable backpack that uh, lots of people have, the canvas one that comes from Sweden. I can't remember the name of the brand. They have um, a set of principles, and one of them is to expect the same of, the, of your supply chain as you would behave yourself. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a really, really simple one. Um, so, yeah. And, but also, I think it's very hard to think in absolutes about these things as well. Uh, Apple also, um, I believe, on its new laptop, um, is using fully recycled aluminium. You know, so there are small steps in that, in that direction. But they're also about to launch a bank. <laughs> um, and probably do that in a very traditional way um, well no so. they, they, they actually haven't which is quite new i mean we could go into that sure. i think i mean they, they, they well, I, th I think that that the, the apple bank or the, the apple card will be an absolute game changer that they really do have the 
potential to to really change how uh, how things are done, making it completely mobile centric and and cutting all the other financial institutions. Uh, I think I think they'll make the existing financial institutions, the traditional banks. Um, have to work harder. I think there are challenger banks out there like Monzo and Revolut that are got very similar. Yeah, but I think if you you know I I, I agree. But if you look at you know when when Monzo launched their um, their, their their online slot or their 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 mobile centric um, banking was way ahead of anyone else out there, and then you know even now NatWest have their their mobile banking app. Is you know it's not quite as polished as Monzo, but it's it it allows you to do a you know probably ninety five percent from from what Monzo can do, um, and yeah you know, they have mm. sorry feature parity. Yeah, but you know it's while Apple integrating it into the into the you know you just or you go i want a card it is as soon as you've ordered it it's on the it's on it's literally embedded into the os on the phone yeah um, i mean they've got a technology advantage and and they're going to exploit a huge it. technology advantage <clears throat> i mean don't get me wrong i think the apple card will be a game changer in the sense that you know no fees um you know you've got features that oh, revolute uh, reward reward things and oh, that's not as good as it, it came out so uh, targets card in the usa gives you five percent back on all transactions yeah yeah, yeah. so you know they, 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 they make it sound like they're doing amazingly well but they're not arguably still encouraging you to just spend money though right and that's yeah. not necessarily so and more on apple so the, the point yeah, yeah exactly so the point is that you know from a feature point of view and this is an issue i you know have uh, challenged the challenger banks on uh, previously um, features are replicable. Yes. You know, um, and that breeds competition and eventually, you know, things all look the same and then you have to make other decisions. All right, so why would I pick one bank over another when they basically look the same? Uh, I would argue principles, if replicated, uh, is a good thing for everybody. Uh, so if that's the next bit, layer of competition, um, you know, so say you're divesting from uh, oil and arms manufacturing uh, investments, for example, if you all started doing that, we all win. So we all have so, a co-op bank, do we? Um, so well, then we all have a co-op account. One of the problems, of course, is that um, there aren't as many of those banks, and they're hard to find. Um, Triodos is actually my favourite. Okay, I don't know them. Tell yeah, me so, more about them. Um, they're a Scandinavian bank. Um, started off doing ethical business loans, um, uh, but now they're going into the consumer market, and they're, they're here now as well. Um, you know, and... Yes, their app isn't probably as good, but throw some designers at it, and it can be. You know, what won't be replicable is their ethics. Uh, and if it is, then like I say, we all win. So then the co-op bank could, could hopefully replicate all the technical capabilities because they have had a long history of ethical investing. Yeah, I mean, that's a bit, it's a bit blurrier nowadays with the co-op, but, um, but yeah, yes. Yeah, because I mean, they've been bought. But I realise this is a sweeping statement, but features are hey, more easy to replicate. Hey, this shows all about sweeping <laughs> statements, come on. This yeah, I mean, you know, once your design is out in the world, you can copy it, right? Um, Steve's right to say that, of course, the integration with the rest of the Apple ecosystem uh, is important and, and a differentiator, definitely. Um, but again, you know, if Apple led the way, uh, like some large investment firms have, in divesting um, their money from places... I would arguably, uh, I would argue that um, more people would be inclined to become Apple customers. Yeah, and I, I think Steve, you're right in the sense that Apple will have a massive leveraging capability. Um, so, but going back to Benefactory, you know, bringing that back to you. Yeah. Um, 
Apple, Apple, uh, uh, the example I was trying to use when I brought Apple into the conversation was the fact that they are trying to be ethical, they're yeah, trying absolutely. to be social, um, and environmentally, certainly. Um, is that enough? Is that, I mean, because still, I think the, the short-termism of Western European uh, stock markets um, worries me. Um, we were talking about the bats, um, not the flying ones, but uh, Baidu, uh, Alibaba, Tencent, the Chinese uh, big conglomerates who basically compete with Google, Apple and Amazon and Facebook, um, uh, the gaffers. And, and in the West, we're going to break them up. We're going we're gonna to limit them. We're going to say, you've got too big. I mean, Apple, if it goes into the money space, will get to a certain size and then it'll be told it can't go any further. Uh, there's already talk about Amazon has to split Amazon Web Services up. Google's already being limited in Europe and being slashed every time it does anything. Um, the West is going to break these companies up because governments never like a, a technology company bigger than its own power base. And I think in China, they're going to use or leverage their companies to... I mean, Huawei with 5G is a perfect example of the Chinese government allegedly, allegedly I say, having uh, a call back to mothership in all 5G chips. You know, what are we going to do to change I, that know, short-term I, capitalism? I mean, that is, a, I, I actually think that the the, the, the Huawei thing is a complete geobit, ge, geopolitical um, whitewash. It's nothing to do with... Um, uh, I don't. I mean, I, there potentially could be security issues there, but well, I okay. Think the Nokia phone that was a Chinese-owned Nokia phone had a callback. It was found to have a callback. Well, actually, I mean, so the precedent is when I, um, Lenovo bought IBM's laptop division. Yeah. Um, at that point, the American military basically uh, blacklisted uh, buying Lenovo laptops. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that was a speculative thing. They didn't know that there was anything necessarily going on. Um, but you know, that was a, a very a big signal. Um, was it a big business? Probably not to Lenovo at the time. Um, Huawei is clearly a lot bigger, I think. Um, well, they own, I think, in terms of 5G chip they are, and, and rollout capability, mm. they are the lion's share. Qualcomm is the other Qualcomm one. Qualcomm as well, of course, yeah. But, you know, it'd be calculated risks. I mean, Qualcomm just settled with Apple this week in their, their dispute. Um, so now, Yesterday? Yeah, well... This week, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's seventeen yeah. hours ago, Sam. I'm, I'm sorry. Oh God, it's not as fresh as it should be. Um, yeah, but but you know, Apple now. Um, I mean, this is going off on a slight tangent because I want to bring it back. But Apple now said that they're going to use Qualcomm and not High. How do you say that? Word? Huawei, I think. Huawei. Yeah. yeah. Huawei. Huawei. <laughs> okay. Huawei. If you know how to say that word, do write <laughs> in. Yeah. Um, but you know, the the point is that the that's going to allow the Apple 5G phone allegedly to come out now because they're going to do a deal with Qualcomm. The iPhone 6 and 7 can be resold again, yada, yada. Cause they... So um, Apple itself is is one example of a company that will get bigger, but it'll, it'll be capped. And, and I'm not sure that that's going to happen to Baidu, Alibaba and Tencent. I mean, mm. Alibaba's equivalent of Apple's uh, Black Friday is about 15 or 20 times bigger. Yeah. I mean, you know... I think, I mean, it's probably, rather than think about those absolute terms, like being capped and that kind of stuff, I mean, the relationships between governments and the corporations that they govern uh, from a regulatory sense are always going to be competitive almost, you know. Sometimes, as in China at the moment, there's alignment in terms of the outcomes they're trying to create. But at some point, there will be compromises made. Um, I, I would argue that there already are compromises made between the corporations in China and the government there. Um, 
give me an example. Uh, you, you say that. What, what do you mean by that? So, well, the fact that you, um, you know, that there is internet blocking, of course, that's a compromise. Right. Um, that there is ownership implied as well, you know, um, data sharing. Those yeah. are compromises that companies have had to make. Okay. Right? So they're not being given a free reign. It's not libertarianism. No, great examples. Um, Good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there already is a, uh, let's say, a negotiated relationship. Um, but where there's alignment versus com- competition, you know, that, that's where the negotiations will always happen. And, and in every country, that's the case. Um, I think the point with China is that, of course, you know, they've seen an opportunity for huge economic growth uh, while the rest of us are kind of flailing around a little bit. Uh, and so they're doing lots of interesting things to essentially make themselves leaders and they're succeeding in that. Um, is that something we should compete with? Well, I think it depends on the impact of them being the leaders to us and the rest of the world uh, and whether it's something we should also be aspiring to or not. Um, one of the other great examples of actually um, of what I would call better regulation or better governmental choice in China was when they subsidised um, the complete transformation of a lot of their memory um, factories, creating computer memory, into um, creating solar panels instead. Um, so the government actually just subsidised that change. And as a result, global solar panel prices came down by orders of magnitude. You know, so that had a very positive effect, but it was because they saw a business op- opportunity to do that. You know, so again, there's no absolutes in this. There's no bad guys, good guys. No, um, I, I'm not saying there is. I think uh, Amy Webb's book, have you read it, The Big Nine? No. Steve, have you read it yet? Nope. Keep talking about it. Go on, boys. Get it on I'm Audible. Not, it's brilliant. It is absolutely... It is the best book that will come out this year, I promise you. Um, just read it. It's amazing. She's an amazing lady anyway. Um, and, look, um, she talks about one wonderful thing. It's called the Silk Road, but the modern Silk Road. China are building out bridges and technology and, and expanding yeah. out into Africa and across the Silk Road through Europe. A trillion dollar. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. And they, they, they're fundamentally going to put their culture onto all of these different so we talk about apple with the supply chain demanding you know that that they do certain things that are in line with apple's ethos china is now building out the silk road yeah and saying to countries we'll give you money we'll build you infrastructure we'll give you technology but you follow our culture so they're doing everything that we did in the last hundred years in without a years. war yeah, sure. Um, but again, it depends how you think about that, you know. Um, there's a great article, I think, on Vice um, that was, I think it was, uh, China is making Africa, China's China. Yeah, yeah, it is. Right? Um, and what that really means is that they're, they're doing what we did. They're buying up land. They're colonising. You know, they're colonising, basically. But they're doing that through investment. Which you, know, you so. could argue was a better way of doing it through than through pillage and plunder. Absolutely, sure. Um, you know, so... Uh, yeah, there are layers of that, obviously. Um, but ultimately, are people's lives going to improve or not? Are they still going to have agency and autonomy over their lives or not? Those are the I, important questions, I think. I'd say the former, their, their lives will improve because just simply the technological Im- infrastructure that's going in and the, and the physical infrastructure that's going in will improve. Um, will they have um, autonomy over their lives? I doubt that. I think one of the things that uh, I was reading about was the social score, you know, the, the mm. thing in China. We've talked about it before here on the show. And um, uh, Amy Webb, brilliantly, I was watching an interview with her this week. She goes, we're having that in the West. We're just having it through creep. We don't realise that it's coming. We're having the same uh, metric placed on people. But what China is doing, she says, is they're fundamentally demanding that in each country. So they're going into countries 
giving them all this stuff. But one of the things they're demanding is the Great Wall of China or the Firewall of China is being pushed out to all these countries. So you won't have access to everything in those countries. You won't... So anything about... Um, what's it? Um, where's the... Dalai Lama from my brain just died Tibet um, anything to do you know with anything of dispute with the Chinese government won't be allowed in those countries yeah and again just to kind of counter that a little bit you know Facebook were trying to give everyone uh, internet access in Africa and, and had similar yeah. restrictions so yeah. and it was rejected you know. yeah I mean I'm not saying it's not so so I'm not go- taking sides on that one just no. <laughs> <laughs> so going back to Benefactory come on let's, yeah, let's bring sure. it back so so the work that you're starting to because this is quite a, a new um uh, enterprise for you yeah. um, is really trying to put a framework I guess together around what companies should look like if they're going to, in my label not yours, Capitalism 2.0 yeah. um, have. So in terms of environmental I get it, I mean but give me some examples of what frameworks environmentally and socially you would think companies could do or should be doing and are there any good examples that you could talk about today? Yeah, so, you know, very, very tangible things are, you know, choosing who your energy suppliers are, right? Same sorts of things we can all do. Um, But then also, um, you know, just being a bit more conscious of uh, the behavior in your supply chain as well. You know, and this isn't just tech companies, this is any any business. You know, there's a, I drink a lot of coffee. Um, We have coffee cups in front of us right now. Are they recyclable? Could they have been? You know, what is an innovative way of solving that problem that becomes a business advantage? Those are the kinds of things that we try and think about. So the whole the whole framing of what you know capitalism two point could be. Um, I'll, I'll try and come up with a different label. Yeah, please. Do. It's really about business cases for this stuff. You know, um, and the biggest business cases are probably the social ones at the moment. Um, it's a bit of a cliche to say that you know it costs ten times as much to find a new person to hire than to retain the one you've got. Yeah. But actually, there is research to show that um, people stay longer in companies they feel are more ethical. And so that is a tangible business case for being more ethical as a company. It's about retention and hiring. One of your biggest costs, potentially, one of your biggest time sucks. So even on very, very simple levels, people feel better about being in companies that are trying harder. And that reduces your HR overhead. Yeah, people say you never leave a company because of a bad job. You leave it because of a bad culture. Sure. Um, so in, in that sense, I, I don't know if you both read about Amazon's shareholders this week are voting on whether they are allowed to use recognition, their facial recognition software. Do you think no, that's... I haven't, no. Oh, yeah. So the, 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 it's got to the point where Amazon was giving out... It's called recognition. Um, I've tried it. It's quite good. Um, still doesn't work with people of dark skin, but hey... Um, what's new? Um, Polaroid film didn't for a long time either. Yeah, no, exactly. It was never designed for any of us <laughs> yeah. lot. Um, so, um, but uh, that started off as an internal um, employee-driven uh, ethical demand. Uh, it's now gone to shareholders who are voting on it this week. Um, I think we've had Google's employees coming out on various things. I mean, one was about Dragon, which was the search engine code name. I think it was called Dragon or Dragon something. That was going to be the Chinese limited version of Google to, to meet the mm. requirement to be inside the Silk Road. Um, is is this the next level of corporatism? Um, I, I don't want to keep using isms, but I have sure. to. Um, is this the next generation where shareholders apart from this one example I just gave of Amazon's shareholders, most shareholders now are not aligned to the ethical business. They are aligned to the profitability of the business because that's their yes. return. So is it employee advocacy that is going to enable companies to be controlled? Because boards aren't doing it. 
boards are not doing it. Non-exec directors are, are not doing it. My wife's a Ned, and she's just left a company I, who I can't name, of course, um, because we were told in order to be a Ned, she now has to have shares in the company, so we have to invest into the company. And she said, well, that removes away my independency from the company because now my goals are aligned with the goals of the company, not about being a, you know, a principal who sits over the top of it. So yep. if Neds aren't doing it, board directors are clearly aligned with financial return. <clears throat> Shareholders are aligned. So is it employees now? Who's going yeah. to manage these things? So ultimately things will change when the money moves. Um, one of the largest two... Um, kind of outwardly talk about this is BlackRock. Um, BlackRock, um, I think it was 2018. World's largest uh, financial house. Yeah, they essentially you know, said, we're going to divest uh, from all our investments that uh, aren't thinking socially about how they operate okay. you know, in much more eloquent terms. <clears throat> um, that was a huge signal. Um, and ultimately, when more of the money moves, things will really change. Okay, I agree with um, that. But yeah, um, employees, obviously, who ultimately create the things that these companies sell to us can have opinions because they are worth something to the company you know so i think that will have an effect will it have an effect on scale i, I it's a hard thing to do um one of the you know going off on a slight tangent here but one of the things that uh, is an interesting stat in this country is that there is no new union uh, attached to a company that is younger than 25 years old wow okay so I, there's I've no never collective been a union. voice person because i don't think some of the things the unions sure. do so so like tech for uk I'd, i i will join after this mm. cbi i wouldn't want to join mm -hmm. i think it's old it's it, it's dated it, it doesn't represent me at all unions i feel exactly the same way about i think len mccluskey when i hear him just my toes curl <laughs> you know the dlr is a driverless train why do we need them on the underground you know yeah well Sorry, Karen. Uh, no, no. Also, I mean, that's a crazy thing also. It's like what? the DLR is driverless. <laughs> they've, they've never had an accident on the DLR. They've exactly. had trains break down, but they've never had an accident. They could put 30% more trains through the underground, but they have to restrict it because of human error, and therefore they exactly. have to have a, so it's partly a security spacing theater. between the trains. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and that's what I'm saying. So going back to what you were saying... Um, there's no new union. I'm not yep. surprised there's no new union because the unions, to me, don't represent the tech industry that we're in. Yeah, that's a, that's a valid point, you know. Um, and again, so going back to this idea of uh, worrying more about the features than the labels, um, I think that there are features of unions that are very important, and a collective employee voice is one of those things. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily defend... Uh, unions as as a status quo and as they are now but i would defend some of the features they have as being important things to have um you know i think uh even delivery riders now uh are joining up joining up to, uh, to unions i think they wanted to start their own um, and it was basically to have a collective voice that was that was the only thing they wanted yeah but i, I again i i have a real I, look, i'd love to know what you both think on this one because I sit on both sides of the fence, which is stupid for me. I, I really should get off it. Um, so when the Uber drivers were had that court case recently, which said that Uber drivers had to have all the same uh, benefits as a full-time employee, I went, has someone missed the whole concept <laughs> of what it was? It was, uh, I work when I want to work, and here's what I've been offered. I can choose not to be an Uber driver. There's no one forcing me to be an Uber driver. But 
it went to court and the court went, yep, you all have to offer them the same thing. So it doesn't, I don't know, yeah. maybe maybe I missed the, the value problem. Think about this from an outcomes point of view. Um, Bernie Sanders talks about this quite a lot and he says that no one in full-time work should be struggling. Okay. Right. Um, I think that's a valid framing of uh, lots of change that's going on right now. You know, so if you're working 40 hours a week, you should be able to pay your rent and feed your children. Uh, I don't yeah. disagree, and, I, and we, we will have a longer conversation on that because we yeah. did earlier, so go on. Yeah, so I think if you, if you start from the kind of point of view of outcomes and then think about all of this from a more positive point of view, rather than it being a battle between employer and employee, think about the value uh, an employer can have created by happy employees, by employees that are focused on their work, are you know um, not taking time off sick because they're having to work too many hours, those kinds of things, um, and are actually incorporated and integrated into the decision-making in that organisation, not just from a vocal point of view, but from a kind of needs point of view as well, um, then good things can happen for all parties. So it doesn't have to be a battle. Uh, and I think the it's it's much harder to measure the indirect effects of this stuff. Um, but there have been experiments in uh, lots of places around raising minimum wage. Um, people assume that raising minimum wage means your business is going to, you know, obviously have higher expenditure. What happens in the community is, of course, that more people spend money. You know, so when you start to think slightly differently about um, how you come up with solutions to uh, the outcomes you're trying to create and do that less directly, actually, you can all start to benefit. I, don't, I mean, this, this isn't new. I mean, we've had John yeah, Lewis with profit sharing and partners. We've had Cadbury's and Bourneville in the past building villages and towns for their employees and, and creating, you know, recreational spaces for them. So none of this is new. I go back to what we said earlier. It was Tom Friedman who basically changed the economic model that people yep. adopted. We have to change that again. And what I'm looking for is some economic genius out there to come up with the next version of what it is that we should be doing. Or do we just take a retro step back to pre-Tom Friedman? So I don't know if this is a thing that can be done in isolation. I think this takes a partnership between uh, you know, the entrepreneurship world, um, the governance world, and the regulatory world, um, you know, and then representative organisations, maybe like Tech for UK, maybe like unions. There was an interesting thing going back to the late 70s. There's a graph which you can find online which shows the uh, productivity of, of corporations versus minimum wage. Up until around 1978, they're pretty much in line with each other. And then minimum wage flatlines. Um, and at the same time, company productivity continues on the same trajectory. If you were to measure what minimum wage should be in this country now, I might be slightly wrong on this, but it's about £28 an hour if you were to follow that same line. So what happened? And what would happen if we were getting paid the minimum wage that would be more uh, representative of the rest of the economy? Because what, that's what that is. You know, so at the moment, people that are um, you know, in these jobs where there's zero hours and having to fight for minimum wage and overworking and working two jobs, their fight isn't necessarily with their employer. Their employer is doing what they can do within the regulation. Something else changed. You know? um, I, I think that's more of a collaborative uh, discussion between the different um, voices in society. Yeah, I mean, I, I was talking to you earlier. I said my first job out of the army was in the city. I was on twenty five thousand a year, but the house I bought was seventy five thousand. Yeah. Right, three times my salary. And when it was three times, that kept house prices down. Um, 
the girl I was with, uh, my, my girlfriend at the time, was on 25, so we were earning 50 grand a year on a 75,000 pound house. Nice and easy, simple maths. As soon as they removed that three times your salary cap, the house prices grew, but we had human capital suppression of wages, and we still have. My friend's daughter left Bristol a year and a half ago, 22,000 her first job but rents were £1,000 a month. You could forget trying to buy a house. There was no way. You know, here in Maidenhead, affordable housing is defined as £400,000. Hmm. I mean, it's, it's just crazy. So that whole, unless we're going to have a collapse in the housing market, yep. are we going to so, see the reverse, which is a wage increase? I can't see and That's it. exactly the point. This is not about, um, you know, deserving it or you know, fairness or equality or any of those things. It can be about those things, but it's not. It's about participation in the economy. <laughs> It's that simple. If you don't have money, you can't participate in the same way. Yeah. And the whole economy is affected by that. Yeah, I mean, the stupid model that I keep hearing about is UBI, Universal Basic Income, which is basically saying we're going to have a, a wage where you don't do anything to cover everyone uh, uh, to keep the capitalist wheel moving around. So fundamentally, companies can't produce goods if no one can afford to buy them, right? So we're going to pay you to do nothing, um, but no one says where that's going to be taken from. So is it going to come from the 20% that's left in work because you're in a val calls 80% the great unwanted that will be the future? So 20% will pay for the 80% to stay at home in order to buy goods from companies that we probably don't need or want. So, yeah, that's an, that last point's interesting, need or want. It gives you more freedom when you have that extra cash, right? Um, if we've been lucky enough uh, to have extra cash, we know what that is like, yeah. you know. Um, freedom is Choice. actually... Yeah, and that's a competitive thing. And all of a sudden, companies might have to compete, right? Um, at the moment, we have Pepsi or Coke, and we end up buying one of them. They both win, right? Uh, they're both awful. Right. Um, if we didn't need to buy either, because we could afford to buy something else. Yeah. Maybe this is a terrible example. Yeah, it um, is. But they would, Prosecco, but, yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> juice. Juice is more expensive right. and better for you. Um, then all of a sudden, the, uh, the corporate kind of um, ecosystem starts to change as well. Um, but I really do think that um, and, you know, UBI, fascinating topic. Lots and this is going back decades. Lots of experiments have been done on this one. We could probably talk for the next hour about UBI. My personal opinion is that while, yes, some people will choose to drop out and that might have a negative effect, I would argue that that's already happening anyway and not through choice. Um, but that actually at the other end of that spectrum, you might have many, many more people that are able to go back into education to start businesses or to just you know, spend money or to play music, be the next bands, you know, that kind of thing, right? So I think that that's a, a balance we haven't been able to measure yet, but I think that's that effect on society, which is ultimately why we're here, right? It's not just to work for somebody else, it's to do all that other stuff. Yeah, I mean... Um, is potentially a good trade. Well, Jack Marg gave a brilliant... <laughs> and then he just contradicted himself this week. Jack Marg gave a brilliant speech about three, four years ago, saying when we went from agricultural to industrial, we went from an 18-hour day to a 12-hour day. And it was America legislation that limited it to a 35-hour working week. So we, we, we said work is 35 hours a week. Of course, we've got technology creep with email and everything else now, so 35 <laughs> hours a week doesn't really exist. But we, we we're saying that AI, when it comes in, is going to free up more time. Fundamentally, it's going to replace many people's work. Um, and I, I think that we're going to struggle to replace people because the quality and the skill requirement is going up. It's not like manual labour from land to manual labour yeah. in an office. It's going to intellectual labour. 
And I think that's going to... Look, we're, we're fast approaching the news, but um, I'm going to let you... Can I end on a phrase that I heard recently? Please do. And I'll... It was hyper-luxury digital communism. Okay, wow. Let's <laughs> unpack that. We have, we have got a little bit of time for the news. Go on, unpack that. Hyper what? Yeah, so, again, and I, I'm not advocating these ideas, but the, uh, the basic premise of Marxism uh, was that true freedom comes when you don't need to work anymore. Okay. Yeah. It, it does. And, what, and that is unpacked in, you know, and manifesting right now through AI and automation and that kind of stuff. That's the potential we end up in is actually this, we don't need to work. Not that we can't, but we have everything. And I agree that, that you could get to a utopian society in which work is, is not required because we could fund it in other ways. Right, we're going to have a little chat about that all afternoon. Steve, you better get scratching your head on some of this stuff, mate, and uh, I'm sure you've got opinions on this all. When we come back after news, we'll talk a little bit about the effects of AI, I think. Mm. Then we're going to go a little bit back into your past, just find out what you did before, uh, and then we're just going to wrap it all up there. I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship, Sam.
go. Air. Enjoy that, Josh? Yeah, a blast of the past. So why, why that track? Come on, we always ask people to play a track and they... Why that track? Yeah, so uh, I, I believe that came out in 98 and I would have been 18. There you go, gave it all away. Oh. Um, so I, you know, I was going through a decision of whether to go to university or whether to take some opportunities in uh, in tech. And uh, I woke up after a, a, a long party and that was on MTV. Um, okay. And I was like, hmm, and I just laid there and I thought about it. Uh, and the actual the music video is about these two skaters that have basically fallen in love and gone travelling in their, in their minibus, you know. So um, what was your decision? You went travelling in a minibus? No. <laughs> no, then things would have turned out quite differently, I think. No, well, I decided not to go to university um, and I decided to carry on working in tech. Yeah, I've been doing about 18 months, you know, learning HTML at that point. Um, yeah, and I got my first job in London, commuting. So, so what year would this be, roughly? Yeah, 98. 98. 98. So, yeah. so I'd I just left Microsoft. I was in Netscape at the time. The browser wars were going on. The first internet was still just about post-dial-up. I think early broadband might be around. Yeah. HTML was transversing rapidly between one, two, three, four, and yeah. I think we're at five now, and it's stopped. Um, <laughs> and rightly so. Um, so, what made you want to get into tech? I mean, yeah, let's have a little chat about your past. Yeah, I think retrospectively, things would have been quite different if I'd uh, known all the things I know now, but uh, how I got Hindsight into it... Hindsight is always obvious after the event. Isn't it? <laughs> um... What actually happened was uh, I was on some holidays, uh, I, think, I think in 96, and uh, our plumber at the time was uh, replacing a radiator, and I was there checking my email. Uh, he looked over my shoulder and said, oh, you're on the internet. What are you doing for the summer? Do you want a job? Um, because there weren't many people on the internet doing stuff at that time. So I spent the summer with him learning HTML um, and, write, and building brighton.co.uk, which is uh, still going. He still runs it. It's um, the same code. Yeah, well, I doubt it, but <laughs> there, there definitely was some of my old code there for a very long time. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, and, you know, getting paid on the summer holidays, doing something interesting. So, so, so you started doing that. Um, how did you end up in Microsoft? Yeah, well, so Microsoft has... Uh, yeah, I think that was 10 years later, maybe, nine, uh, 2008. 10 years? Blimey. Yeah, okay. so quite a lot happened in that time. Um, like I say, I was commuting to London uh, up to Hoban from Brighton as, a, as a, an 18-year-old after that job. Um, that was uh, my first kind of experience of corporate life, really, thrown in the deep end in an events company. Um, but then I got the bug doing startups, and in 2000 two i believe uh, and this is one that um steve knows a bit about uh, i started a wi-fi company um so we were putting free wi-fi in bars and cafes before people knew what wi-fi was <laughs> right yeah so that was the what first does thing steve know about it uh he's got a background in uh, running isps and yeah no i know that stuff. have you yeah. sorted out your isp problem you had a couple of weeks ago steve have we lost him? We have lost Steve. <laughs> well, that's, so that uh, startup is actually still going, uh, run by a good friend of mine, uh, and we do um, WiMAX now, so the big brother to Wi-Fi. Okay. We kind of do backup infrastructure for large offices, which is really interesting. Um, yeah, and then um, around then, it was actually when kind of the industry started to collapse a little bit, so I, bizarrely, I'm not sure you know this, Sam, but uh, I went to become a chef. <laughs> okay. So I uh, spent about three and a half years chefing, um, and it's amazing how much I've learned from that that I carry on into what I do now. 
Um, it was an incredible environment to be in uh, and a skill that obviously I think, you know, is incredibly useful. I enjoy cooking a lot and I think... Uh, okay, what's your, what's your go-to meal if you're having a romantic moment then? Go on. Oh, I'm doing mac, mac and cheese quite a lot at the moment. Mac? You, <laughs> you would be not someone I'd want to go on a date with, that's what I said. No, but also... Mac and cheese. I was expecting something a bit more elaborate. I do what I call everything salads as well sometimes. Everything but uh, Yeah, uh, elaborate... You know, I mean, one of the things that I did learn in chefing was that you don't need to spend all your time cooking. And if you are going to spend a long time cooking, then really enjoy it. Um, so, you know, long stews and curries, that kind of thing, if I'm going to do that, you know. Um, but my, my partner, she will um, often bring up how one night I cooked an entire roast in under an hour just because I felt like having a roast, you know. And so sometimes you can rush through the nice things as well. Oh, like OK. That. All right. Yeah. So, OK, let's get, let's get back mm. on track, though. It's not a food show. <laughs> Next um, time. So Microsoft, you left there. I mean, you, you've yeah. been an entrepreneur as well in your own time. Yeah, that's right. Um, How I kind did you of, find that? So I've spanned big and small organisations, started my own, worked in obviously Microsoft, you know, very large corporation. Um, I've also done time in charities. Um, so I worked at Comic Relief for almost five years. Yeah, tell me well. a little bit about that. I was fascinated. Yeah, so that was 2004 I started there. 2005, I think, something like that. And um, I joined the very small digital team at the time. There was five or six of us. Um, and I, the structure of Comic Relief is... Uh, a bit unique. Um, it's clearly associated with the BBC, but actually it's its own separate organisation, of course. The BBC produces the TV show. Yeah. The rest of the year, there's a team of people putting together the whole campaign, doing the grant making and everything else. And we were there getting onto the tech side of the story. Uh, we were there really during their transition away from um, 100% TV focused to online focused as well. Um, and what it means to kind of be dual media in that sense, carry people's user journeys across both and engage people outside of the TV show. Um, so that was a really fascinating time dealing with, you know, mailing lists with millions of people on, um, challenging things around kind of the perception of, you know, we're just a TV show. What do you mean you do stuff, you know, the rest of the time? Um, and, you know, uh, what, what, how come you're still working? Isn't that, that going to be in March? <laughs> right. You know, and of course, there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes. Yeah. And, um, so I won't, I won't bore you with a lot of the technical stuff of that, but uh, it was a place where we dealt with huge scale that I had never dealt with before. Um, so if you imagine your startup and every two years you have about nine hours to make your entire revenue for that period, that's what it's like at Comic Relief. You know, so on that night, you're taking donations on the phones, you're taking donations online, and there's very little other opportunity for the rest of the time between Red Nose Days to actually bring your revenue in. So it's very high risk, uh, very high pressure, very high frequency of donation. You know, everything is big all in one moment, and that's yeah, a kind of and, difficult and, and, challenge. And failing would not be a good thing. Right. And, you know, again, I don't know how much detail you want me to go into on the technical stuff, but, uh, you know, we had um, call, center, call centers of 10,000 people all using our application to take donations on the phone. Um, we would do things like uh, adapt the donation pages, depending on what messaging are being on the TV. So you've kind of got this live um, kind of continuous journey going on that's continually being updated. Um, and then also layers and layers of infrastructure dealing with failover and attacks and all sorts of other things. Uh, I think we had seven layers of redundancy on our payment systems. Uh, and at one point, um, 
sorry, at any one point, <laughs> you know, we're taking tens of thousands of donations, but at spikes, we actually had to load balance over multiple banks because there were no banks that could take that many transactions per second. Wow. To give you an idea. Uh, and at the same time, of course, you're a massive target for people that are trying to get credit card numbers. And so you have to keep the whole thing secure. And uh, we had amazing tech partners. Um, back then, they were uh, people like Sun and Oracle, um, who were, you know, and Cisco. Cisco actually played a huge part in that. Um, there was an opportunity for them to uh, try out some of the cutting edge technology in an environment that was quite rare to find. You know, yeah, um, that, that's at the bleeding edge. I know, like yeah. IBM, like using Watson for Wimbledon and right uh, and the World Cup and things like that because it, it is you know mission critical. Yeah. Absolutely. And there's, there's, it's very hard to test for that stuff, you know. Um, and so we not only are having to build very robust infrastructure at that point, um, and we've, we were trans, trans, uh, transitioning onto things like AWS at the time as well. Um, so we could kind of like outsource the scale side of that slightly more. Um, but of course, you're trying to make it usable and you're trying to make it make sense. And then there's the marketing angle of that, trying to get people to do- actually donate and a, a certain amount and give them give us your email address and those kinds of things. So, you know, you've got this very, very small opportunity one time every 24 months to do that. Yeah. So um, it, it just dawned on me. I mean, that that's credit card transaction. In today's potential future world, mm. Bitcoin. Yeah. <laughs> do you think you could ever do it with Bitcoin and, and, and that sort of currency? And would it be easier or harder? You, you talked about scale. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, <coughs> I kind of think about this going back to my past originally, you know, and I remember when Amazon and eBay were just dying out, right? Uh, and those of us of this age, we do. Um, but at that point, it was unusual to even use your credit card online. Yeah. You know, um, there, were, there was a lot of distrust. Um, SSL wasn't a thing. We couldn't secure our websites properly, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, it just wasn't common to do that. And it was this huge behavioral change that needed to happen for it to become normalized, to put in personal information onto your computer screen and hope for the best, essentially. Um, and, it, you know, arguably took decades for that change to happen. I think the same is true with any new technology that uh, hooks into something so fundamentally part of our lives, our bank accounts, right? So while, yes, it may happen, it probably won't happen for a while, and only when it's integrated into something that we trust, I, th- I think, you know? So if you have your Apple wallet that's got your Bitcoin in it, and as you know, it works in Safari and on your phone with your, th- with your thumbprint... And on your Apple card. And on your Apple card, then maybe you will. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know there's banks now... Putting Bitcoin, uh, Steve and I talked about this in a, a show about four weeks ago, five weeks ago, where you know banks are now underwriting the Bitcoin. Right. Uh, wow. And and so suddenly you've gone from what was supposed to be a decentralisation of the banking system to the banking system underwriting a decentralised currency. So yeah, <laughs> you know, in order to get trust, which was the key. I wonder, I wonder if that's been tested yet. Yeah. Well, <laughs> in court, I mean. Um, um, I don't know if it's been tested in court, but you've got ICOs, internet coin yep. uh, options, now being replaced by um, STOs, the, the bank transfer, uh, bank-backed ICOs. Um, and and that, you know, a, a, is, is a change. So it's making those ICOs much more reliable, yeah. secure, trusted, uh, 
able for people to come in and not think they're going to lose their shirt on it all. Yeah, so there's some <clears throat> irony in that, of course, like you, like you pointed Absolute out. Absolute you know, irony. Um, <laughs> so then it's a question of, well, is the technology still useful if effectively we're just swapping something out for, you know, if we're swapping out the back ends but keeping the trust on the front end with the same organisation, what does it matter? You know, I think that's an important uh, debate that needs to be had for sure. Um, and I think... Uh, you know, decentralizing any part of society comes with all sorts of baggage and uncertainty. Um, so again, you know, it'd be a huge transition, but huge transitions have happened in the past. Yeah, no, I, I, it'll be interesting to see, we, looking back 10 years, you know, it'll be interesting to see whether Bitcoin, Ethereum or derivatives of mm. uh, catch on um, or were they just, a, you know, an interesting blip on the on the technology roadmap, you know, and yeah. we've moved on to something else. I suspect, like a lot of things, it'll be happy, something that just happens to us. I'm not sure we'll make the choice on something like that, on something that fundamental. It will happen around us without us even noticing. Yeah, I think I think it'll be when central banks adopt Bitcoin yep. and, and replace gold in some ways. Um, I mean, one of the things I saw recently was um, the amount of coins that are currently used in circulation is dropping rapidly. Physical coins. Yeah. Mm. But in California, Amazon Go was forced to put a cash till into their Amazon cashless supermarkets, Amazon goes, because it meant that people who didn't have a bank account couldn't shop there. Yeah. But if you ask me, Amazon didn't want the people with no bank account to shop there anyway in the first place. I uh, see. I would call that customer development. Uh, oh, okay. Feature. <laughs> or market development. Not a know. bug, a feature. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the thing about in- inclusion, you know, and designing for everybody is that actually it's about allow- allowing them to give you money for your product. Who would have thought? It's a crazy idea. Um, you know, but so yes, there can be an overhead for serving different customers. Of course, that's definitely a thing. And I think that goes for every type of customer. And there is, you know, the, the cost of sale, right? Uh, you know, for, for everyone. Um, a great example of inclusive design, actually, that I like to bring up that uh, my business partner, Andy, uh, at Benefactory, um, uses as a good kind of story is the competition around the OXO potato peeler. I'm not sure if a lot of people know this one. No, go on. But we probably all have OXO potato peelers at home, yeah? They're the black-handled rubber things. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. So that was actually out of a competition. And uh, OXO ran a competition to design a potato peeler uh, for people with physical disabilities. Uh the idea being that, you know, of course, traditional kitchenware uh, can be can be a challenge for people that um, that have disabilities. Um, and the OXO potato peeler that we all have is the result of that competition because what they realised was that in designing something that was u- more usable, it was better for everybody. Right. Um, so what they've done is created one product that just includes more people. Um, and so that has actually reduced the overhead in the sense that they're not designing uh, multiple products selling them in different ways, manufacturing them in different ways. They're designing and building one product for everybody. So inclusive design, and that's a very tangible example, um, I think of as market development, but also as a competitive advantage as well. Can you name any other manufacturer of potato peeler that you no. that you would rave about, right? No. Yeah. Um, they've also created a great measuring jug as well for similar reasons. So they've, they've realised that this, this strategy is a good, uh, good tactic. Sorry, I'm just trying to get Steve back on here. Yeah, so I think you know you can you can apply those kinds of ideas to to any kind of industry, any business, um, and think about it. In sorry, it's, it's about changing the narrative on that, and rather than thinking about it as an overhead and thinking about them as opportunities instead. You know, so uh, on the banking note, um, banking note pun not intended. Um, <laughs> 
a lot of people uh, don't realise that actually uh, for the unbanked in the UK at least, yeah. um, which is a category uh, that banks don't like to serve because there's no money in it, yeah. there's actually uh, funding, or at least there was, um, from, uh, from government grants uh, for serving each of those individual customers. And I think it's on the order of about £300 a year per customer that you wouldn't normally want to serve because legally in this country, banks have to serve everybody. Um, but they get subsidised to do that. Mm. You know, if you're clever about that, that's a business opportunity. You know, so um, most bank accounts are what the banking industry calls free if in credit, i.e. Yeah. Uh, if you're in credit, you don't pay anything. If you're not, you do. You pay heavily. You pay heavily. And actually, those free if in credit accounts um, make quite a lot of money for banks. You know, um, but it's less than the £300 a year on average to serve people that might well be good customers but for some reason you don't want to serve mm. and it's about again that access to the economy you know so if you give people access to the economy they contribute back to the economy even if it's just in their spending and so you need to give them ways of doing that you know and a bank account comes with a bank card that you can use on amazon you know it really is that simple so inclusive design and inclusive policies are actually about market development and competitive advantage okay wow yes <laughs> I, I, there's nothing i can disagree with that um oh there's a few things <laughs> I was going to, the reason why I wanted Stephen, because it was about one of Steve's projects, City Meets Tech. <laughs> and Steve, can you hear me? Can you put yeah. a... Yes. There we go. There you are. Cool. There yeah. you go. If you take it off mute, it helps. <laughs> it wasn't on mute. It was somehow it's just the, the, one of the microphones has just decided not to... Uh, oh, okay. What um, are the other projects? Because you both obviously worked on it together, City Meets Tech. What was City Meets Tech? Um... It was a, a pitch event for startups, but we uh, with no fees, and we were very, very. Um, the whole point of it was that startups didn't have to pay to pitch. So it was started pre um, SEIS being announced by the government, and getting access to early stage funding was difficult. So uh, myself, uh, a, a colleague who was uh, actually working in the city at the time, and Jason Trost from Smarkets um, got together and said we should run this event and we got some various people involved like uh, at the time uh, Lord Young came along and gave a talk and uh, Eric van der Clay who was at the time of at the time head of Tech City uh, or as or the Tech City organization as it was known then um, and uh, various other exciting people um, Including Anil Hansji, who was who had just gone off to work for a, a, a VC, but had previously been involved with uh, M&A at Google, and therefore and and was very in, it had had been very into um, purchasing startups. So, uh, and we got about a hundred um, people from the city coming along, and uh, because there there was this whole disconnect between the the city, which was half a mile away from Shoreditch. Um, and they didn't talk to each other, so that was how the how it started. Then, obviously, as things things progressed, people came and went, and uh, 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 sort of quite early on, Josh Josh came in and got involved, and I mean, I'm sure he can tell you some more. Yeah, I mean, so for me, it was uh, another another thing about access. So access is a common theme. You know? It is for you, yeah. Yeah, um, you know, creating access uh, between communities. 
you know, um, but also playing a kind of curating role in that. You know, so again, bringing expertise into uh, where there are communities that are currently disparate, you know. Um, and with City Meets Tech, you know, I think that we also, what Steve did mention there is we invited other, uh, what, you know, we're mostly friends of ours, but um, experts in the field to come and kind of help us do shortlisting and to help the startups through that process so that they were presentable and were able to actually get results out of that engagement, yeah. So it's a common theme that runs through all that you do, really. I mean, it's collaborating with people, bringing people together and helping others get going. Is yeah, that fair to say. I definitely. Um, I'm much happier in the background, just giving gentle nudges to other people. <laughs> yeah, and opening up opportunities for sure. You know, uh, I'm a fan of lists. Um, you know, I, I try and share things quite a lot. I try and remember tools I use, people I've met, that kind of stuff. You know, um, you know, and actually the whole the whole thing about access is that we don't think we have it. Um, let me give you a tip. Everyone's email address, right? This is not. I'm not giving anything away here. Is first name dot last name at companyname.com. Pretty much, not always, but right? yeah. I, um, but once yeah. you know that, and you know that they check their email just like you do, yeah. you can email them, you know. And so access is relatively easy. Um, what comes next is hard, of course, you know. So, and this actually has fed into Benefactory as well. So, you know, there are lots of terms that the um, kind of investment industry use, and one of them is uh, being investor ready, you know, readiness. Um but what does that mean? I think a lot of a lot of the time it's it's talked about in terms of presentability. You know, how do you talk about the thing? Um, it's not about that. It's about the substance. You know, do people need your thing? You know, are you ready for uh, injection of capital that will take that to people? You know, and actually develop it. Um, so readiness takes many forms, but then you need to get that in front of the right people, and I think that's what we did at Amy Tech. Okay, one last thing to cover off with you. you talk, we, we talked about benefactory and social, financial, and environmental. We talked about also capitalism 2.0. Mm. One of the new models that you touched on with me over lunch was uh, community-based companies. Yeah, so, and actually this came out of um, the kind of tokenization, the Bitcoin uh, kind of world, and it's this idea of community economies. So um, treating uh, groups of people uh, as um, as economies themselves, where, you know, people um, benefit from an economy and are incorporated into the decision-making in that economy. Uh, and in the Bitcoin kind of version of this, a community token economy, uh, where they actually use a token to exchange value amongst the community. This isn't a new idea either, really. Um, so things like co-ops do this in a, in a sense. The circular economy kind of um, ideas are doing that as well. Simple things like local spending. You know, spend money in your local shop rather than the big shop. It keeps money local, helps the local economy. That's your community. That's a community, community economy. Think about that in a more formalized way when you're incorporating your business you know, and bring in uh, your users, your employees and everyone else. We've run out of time. Can you believe it? Uh, thank you very much, Josh, for coming on the show today. Thank you, Steve, for joining us. Thank you, Sam. That show was amazing. To listen again, please visit our website, marlofm.co.uk or visit our Facebook group, Sam Talks Technology. And now you can subscribe on iTunes. Never miss a show again. See you next week. Same time, same place.